welcome to the SaaS Developer YouTube, where we talk to interesting people and learn how to build SaaS software. And with me today, we have Ben Stansil, who is the founder of uh, Mode, an analytics company, and a prolific blogger. Uh, I'm going to put his blog link below. Yeah, it, every single week you get extremely thought-provoking ideas from the data world. So definitely go there. Um, ben, it's fantastic to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I, I appreciate the, the time. Yeah, so the reason I invited you is that I went around asking my knowledgeable friends about, I'm hearing suddenly my entire Twitter feed is data contracts. <laughs> For like weeks, everything was data contracts. And I completely failed to get the excitement. And everyone I talked to said, oh, you should talk to Ben about it. And they did the introduction and here we are. So why is everyone excited about data contracts? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, so, okay, there's a few ways you could probably answer that. Uh, at its at its core, as best I can tell. Now, now, people have different definitions of this, and there are some people who have like kind of narrow definitions, and some people have kind of general definitions. As best I can tell, the the the, the general definition is essentially a data contract is a schema and like tests that validate against that schema. So, say that you're a you're a developer, you're building some application, um, you're writing logs to that application from that application, or you have a warehouse like an application database that sits behind it. Uh, analytics teams will build things on top of those, those data sets. So they will build reporting on top of those event logs, or they will build reporting on top of the, um, the application database, or they'll build models that'll do predictions that potentially get fed back in the product or whatever. So there's, there's stuff that gets built on top of it. Historically, when engineers want to make changes to those things, they kind of do it on their own. There isn't a lot of consulting with the downstream people about those changes. They're building the application. So if they want to make changes to the application schemas, they'll just make it, um, which kind of makes sense because they're building the product and the pro that application schema needs to fit the product. But it has all these kind of knockoff effects where like it'll break stuff downstream because people have built it assuming things will be formatted in a particular way. Those schemas will be working in a specific way. And, and schemas in sort of like a general sense here, I don't necessarily just mean like columns and data types, but also whether or not there could be nulls, duplicates, like things like that, like what are the expected values in certain columns. Really what a data contract is, is saying, let's write those things down. Let's say that these are the things that they should, you know, these columns should have these values, they should be null, they should be unique, whatever. Uh, and then have things that check it so that if for some reason an engineer changes something, the change essentially gets invalidated. That it's essentially like a, like a CIVCD type of test where part of the, the thing that has to pass for deployment is you can't invalidate the contract. You can't say like this schema has changed in a way that breaks the expectation of the data teams that are using it. So, okay, I mean, that makes sense. I think, and I think that's like a reasonable thing to do. There, there are a lot of questions there of like, how far do you go with that? Um, and I think that's where like a lot of this sort of conversation has come from. You know, like what happens when you break it? Uh, do you like enforce it that tightly? Is it something that's just sort of an alert? Is it something where like production deploys fail um, and you can't actually like deploy over it? Uh, can you actually express these contracts that well? Like how much can you actually, you know, say this is what we expect? Can you break it in ways that aren't actually a part of the contract? Um, 
there's also people who have a way more sort of detailed definitions of this, that they've essentially implemented some form of this at their company. And to them, the data contract is essentially, it's, it's more, more tightly defined. This is exactly how we built it with, we do sort of streaming things in this way. We validate them in this way. There's more of a process built around it. Um, and so all of those pieces are sort of like the, the extraneous stuff to me that I think where a lot of this debate comes from. But fundamentally, my understanding is like what a data contract really is. Is just this idea of saying, hey, let's put some rules in place. Um, and that way, the people who are sort of generating the data sets, in this case, the engineers, understand what the expectation is of what they're generating. And if they validate those expectations, then, or invalidate those expectations, then something happens to say, hey, you broke it. Can you fix it? Or can you go negotiate with the data people to say, here's why we need to change it? And they can make whatever changes they need to sort of be receptive to that, to that update. So, first of all, let me just double check that I got it right. Mm-hmm. I have my production possible database mm-hmm. i'm obviously a good engineer so i have this sql file with my entire schema mm-hmm. in github essentially this is my data contract right if i change this this is the thing that people will want may worry about uh, especially if my events are also kind of change capture of that mm-hmm. which is fairly common and then if i have other stuff that i produce to as events, then that's another part of my data contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so for instance, like an easy example of this would be, say that you're building a SaaS application and it originally had two, it has like a paid plan and a free plan. Yeah. And so you have a, you have some column somewhere that flags that, that says like is paid and it's true or false. Yep. And then because of the business, you need to introduce a new thing that's saying, actually, we have no three plans. We have paid, we have, we have basic, we have premium. And so that is paid is no longer valid. Now you have like plan type and now it's free paid and, and premium or free basic and premium or whatever. So if you were just an engineer, you may just want to change that. Like it makes more sense. Like that's the way that it needs to fit the new model. Okay. You change it. Um, the problem is if like you have a bunch of reporting or, or even production stuff built on top of that, say your billing systems are dependent on that, that are downstream from like the application itself. They feed into some automated system and data engineer built. If you just change that, it'll break all of those things because they're expecting a, you know, is paid field that's true or false. And suddenly they start getting a plan type field that is a, that's a series of strings. And so really you're trying to avoid those kinds of things. And then that's like the easiest kind of case because you can introduce these things in all sorts of ways that are unexpected. Um, people can change things. They don't think will change stuff that, you know, they thought nothing would change, but it did because there are errors or whatever. Um, but ultimately it's, 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 it's attempt to be a protection against that where, the stuff the data engineers or, or application engineers are doing that generates data is very complicated. There's a lot of effects to it that are sometimes very obvious and sometimes not at all. And then the people who are building on top of that are building, assuming that nothing will change. And when it does, they basically want to know about it prior to it breaking all of the stuff that they have built. In some cases, that's just an irritance. It's just case it's like a dashboard breaks, you got to go fix it. Um, in other cases, it's customers get billed wrong uh, because there's a billing yeah. system that's built on top of it. So there's like there are real effects to that. Absolutely. Um, so I have definitely seen the problem. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is that everything that is considered like production code usually mm-hmm. have very rigorous testing. It goes through CICD, there is integration tests and all that. It will just not get to production if stuff breaks. But I have never seen the business data warehouse reporting actually being tested in that CI/CD pipeline. 
Um, and my assumption is that data people have their own pipelines somewhere that are in connect, in, unconnected. So is data contracts really about a way to connect those two pipelines? So this is this is where some of the like the debate probably is um, and where there's there's a little bit of like contention. Uh, so say that you, you can imagine one way that this could work, for instance, is the application engineer builds the, the pipeline essentially. They they create the data, right? They have the go from is paid to paid or to plan type. That data gets loaded somewhere by a data engineer into the environment that the analytics team or data team is using it. So in, in effect, the way that looks today is like it gets ELT'd or just like dumped into Snowflake basically into like a big warehouse, a data lake or something like that. And the data team builds on top of that. Um, now, th that, the data team could also put their own contracts more or less in place that are independent of anything that anybody else does. Like there's no reason why a data team couldn't have that same validation that doesn't happen prior to the deploy, but happens prior to any of the sort of data production systems getting touched. So for instance, say all the raw data comes in, is, uh, is paid suddenly changes from is paid to plan type. There are, that table literally will not immediately get dumped into a billing system that charges a customer. It will go through some other pipeline and, and the data contract in effect could be something that is validating that kind of like staging raw data that comes in from the application team prior to anything else happening after. So the effect there is the same, that, and, and the goal is the same of saying, hey, like data is going to change. We don't want that broken data or change data to affect some system downstream. Where you put the gate is the kind of the question here. Like, does the gate sit on the engineering team? Does it sit on the data team? Um, where is the check? My belief in this is that the check really should sit with the data team. Like, it's not... It's a lot to ask a application engineering team to be that conscious of both how do we build a great application and how do we make sure that like the structure of the data that we're providing fits some reporting need downstream of us. Um, I understand like, sure, you want to be collaborative in this stuff. You want to work together, like ideally in sort of like the, the product specking of these things, you would recognize which data, which parts of data will change and data teams are there to sort of help out and it's a collaborative thing. But ultimately to me, like, the things that happen in the data world are the responsibility of the data team. And to say like, we are just going to accept the changes from other teams and we aren't going to put our own sort of protections in place is a little bit of like passing the buck in a way that I don't think is actually appropriate. Like I think, sure, absolutely. We should, we should ask for help and if we can get help, great, but we should actually have our own, our own protections in place first before we go back to the engineering team and say, actually it'd be really helpful if you did this too. Like, like to me, the, the ideal sort of structure of this would be data teams get really good at sort of managing this themselves. If that then becomes a frustration where people are constantly sort of breaking the internal like data team contracts that only sort of happen in the warehouse, then okay. Then you can start to have like the conversation with the engineering team saying, hey, we need to push this further to you. But I think you got to solve that first problem first before you're saying like our dashboards are breaking. Go to the sort of data providers and say like stop changing data to ship application code it's like their job is to ship application code not to make your dashboard look good like protect your dashboard once that's better then you can go and try to figure out how to solve that second order problem yes so in the engineering world obviously there has been like several decades long movement uh, toward um getting better at making different parts of the application all those microservices mm -hmm. less coupled and contracts is a part of it, but also 
the ability to version stuff. So you can actually say, okay, I want to talk to that version and having this slow deprecation. Is there an analogous movement in the data world that can kind of uh, be lead to better alignment eventually? For around like how to like APIs basically? So in the, in, in engineering, it's definitely APIs, right? The mm -hmm. reason that I can ship my microservice extremely fast and know mm -hmm. that I'm not breaking anyone else is that I kind of know how to do it. I know mm -hmm. what changes I can yeah. make that I don't have to communicate and what changes I need to kind of yeah. slow roll and how to slow roll it and all that. Um, is there like a that, if I want to play really nicely with my data team, is there an analog? So data contracts are kind of that, like, like people, th there's like the, the like astronaut shooting the other astronaut, you know, <laughs> meme thing of like data contracts. Wasn't it always just schemas kind of thing? The other version of that, that is like, basically, isn't this just an API? Like, and, and some of the proponents of them are, are essentially saying all we're asking for is an API that as, as sort of the data provider, again, we're asking saying like, hey, you're basically providing us an API that we get data out of. Can you just like guarantee that API or tell us when you're gonna change it? Which again, I think is like reasonable-ish. Um, it, it sounds reasonable. I think in practice, it's actually a lot harder because unlike say microservices APIs, which tend to be fairly like, they, they don't do a lot. Like that's the point. It's not something that's, it's not something that is meant to be this enormous sort of schema of output. Like it is meant to be a fairly basic, you give me these inputs, I give you an output, that's it. Like you give me a user ID and I spit out a bit of information about that user ID. And I don't care what you do on the other side, just like, and, you know, obviously we can debate whether or not that architecture makes sense. I am not the person to talk about that. Apparently Elon Musk is, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but the, to me, the, the challenge with that is the things that like are the, data sources here are considerably more complicated than what you would get out of like a regular, like you're asking for entire tables and schemas worth of data. And that's like a much harder thing to guarantee. That's not saying like, I give you a user ID and you give me a couple of bits of information about them. It's saying, I'm asking for this entire swath of data that always needs to be formatted in a particular way that always needs to be guaranteed with schemas, always needs to be guaranteed with like data types. I think it's, again, yes, that is kind of an API, I guess, but it's, it's so much more complicated to me that I think it puts such a burden on the data provider to like constrain how they think about development when their job is development. Like the engineer's job is to build the application. They should put that first and foremost. All of the other stuff that happens should be the secondary. Um, if they're going to make massive changes that break a bunch of other stuff, again, we should work together and figure that stuff out. But I think it's a little bit like too much to ask to put systems in place that prevent that or that put systems in place to discourage that when like, again, their, their job is to say, hey, make the application as good as you can. If you have to blow everything up and replace it all and you can make a better application and better product for our customers, blow it all up. Like our job as a data team is to do with that, not to say, hey, you can't ship that better product because it invalidates these contracts that we have around like DBT models and stuff like It's extremely refreshing to me to hear someone come here and say, maybe we shouldn't make developers do all that. Because usually everyone's like, oh, shift left, which basically means dump mm -hmm. more things yeah. out of specialized teams onto a more or less general purpose software developer. Mm -hmm. uh, so I kind of 
like the idea that no, we have teams with specialities, they have their responsibilities and ownership, and we don't have to push everything to the same developers to own um, both the customer-facing sides of the APIs, the microservices side of the APIs, mm -hmm. and the uh, data team slash reporting-facing side of things. Right. Like, and you end up having to play with this giant Rubik's cube of things where it's like, well, I can't change this. I can't change this. And, and I think at the end of the day, uh, presumably in most cases, if you are like, if you are an application engineer, Silicon Valley has a problem with like sort of elevating certain roles at others expense. But if you're an application engineer, you are the person building the product for the customer. Like that's the thing that needs to be prioritized. doesn't mean you're like better or whatever, but it means that if, if you are trying to make a trade-off between do we protect the interests of the internal data team versus protecting the interests of the customers? Protecting the interests of the customers. Like, that's the point. Um, and so, again, I, I think, like, in some ways, there's a little bit of an extreme stance in that, that people who would be proponents of data contracts are essentially saying, like, we'll just, just sort of write it down and add tests in place. And I, I agree with that. Like, if you can write some tests and, and as an as a application engineer, you know when you change things that people are going to expect, if you just tell them, Okay, great. Or if you change it, and you like didn't really care. You just did it because you thought it would be convenient. Okay, fine. Like to me, it's more of the contract in, on the application engineering side is a let me know if you break it. Um, and if you don't really care about it, like I would prefer you don't, but like don't hold to it that tightly. It's like a suggestion, um, a loose guideline. Uh, whereas I don't think it should be something that like, Anytime you want to make a change, you've got to go back to the data team and negotiate with the data team whether or not we can ship this feature to a customer. Like that should not, the data team should have no say. Yeah. Um, and honestly, they, not in that that they will always lose this negotiation, right? I mean, they no, should. And what, what, what no business would ever say, okay, we're not going to make revenue because the data team will have to rewrite a report. <laughs> right. Which, which raises the question of why have it in the, there in the first place? Like, like if, if you have a thing that's going to say, like, oh, this is going to, this is going to, this this issue now creates a conversation between two people to figure out what to do, but the thing you're always going to do is one thing. You don't need to have that conversation. Now, again, that's that's not to say that there isn't useful to have like alerts. It's not useful to say that like you shouldn't have stuff that blocks that data from ultimately getting into production systems such that you build customers wrong or whatever. Yes, you should have those sorts of things. But I think to your point, that doesn't need to sit also on application engineers. That should be like the data team should be able to handle malformed data, unexpected data on their own. Uh, and then if, again, if that becomes such a problem that they have to go back and like negotiate it and say like, Hey, you're constantly giving us stuff that's changing all the time. We can't do our jobs. Okay. Figure that out. But that's, that's a much more like a second order problem to me. The yeah. first order should be like data team, sort of get your own house in order and then worry about everybody else before you sort of start pushing these contracts on other people. So this can bring other... me to another place. Sorry. If you have more. Oh, so the, the other, the one other part I'd make on the point I'd make on this is <clears throat> all of the way we're talking about this is where the data producer is the application engineer, where you actually have say in like how that data is produced. Like if you are an engineer building, you know, the, the, the event stream that is being fed into the warehouse is an event stream that is written by an application engineer. You have complete control over that data set. Yeah. A lot of the data that data teams use is not that. It is data that is extracted from third-party systems. It is data that is extracted from Salesforce and from Citrix, uh, not Citrix, um, uh, the billing software that I now suddenly blanking on. Um, Stripe? No, Stri Stripe. I was thinking of the other one, uh, the like awful one. Like uh, it's into, it's not into it. It's 
I don't know. There's, it's, it's one of these like ERP systems. I probably um, don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like an SAP thing or whatever. But, uh, but all of these like these like, you know, it's 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 systems of record that are coming from SaaS applications and things like that. Um, and and those things are are generated not by application engineers. Those things are generated by the sales team and by the sales ops team and the finance team. And there's somebody who like, for instance, in Salesforce's case, there's Salesforce administrators that will basically like they're defining the Salesforce schema depending on how they want to administer Salesforce. They add new fields, they change the way sales processes are run. That data is just as important to a lot of data teams as application data because like business reporting gets built on top of it. There's no way to like enforce some sort of data contract on a, on a sales ops person because they're going to change Salesforce to run the sales team. They don't even know how the schema is changing. Like you're changing an application and Salesforce is the thing that translates that into some underlying schema. It's very hard as a sales ops person to be like, I'm going to add this field to this object. What's that going to change? It may change things in ways you don't understand. Like if you're not an engineer writing explicit code. And so in those cases, like you have no choice but to have the data team be the people who sort of runs that contract because there's no there's nobody even signing on the other side. Um, and so if you're already going to have to do that, if a data team already has to do that, to me, it's like do it all there. Don't have like a contract with an application team and, and sort of a self-signed contract with yourself with a sales ops team. It's like just have the self-signed one with yourself and everyone. Interesting. I have to admit that I haven't thought, I always assumed that Salesforce as a company kind of guaranteed something on the data. They, 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 they do, but it's, it's Salesforce is highly customized, customizable. Nice. Um, so like they have, you know, it's a basic sort of, you have like accounts and then users in those accounts and stuff like that. But like the whole appeal of Salesforce is you can customize, you can build custom objects in the system. Mm. Like for instance, say that you're a subscription-based business versus something that sells widgets in a store. You need different objects in your Salesforce yeah. instance to be able to reflect those different types of things. And so you can customize that in all sorts of ways. And Makes so sense. sales admins will do that. And then they'll be like, oh, we're a subscription business, but we have overages. We have one-off purchases. So they add all these like, custom objects in ways that Salesforce itself will like, always express those things in the same way but the, the it's not something like it's such an immense schema that you can't actually have a contract around all of that you guys as a data team have to sort of take so, what you're given so there's also the reverse problem right like literally reverse etl where a salesperson says oh there's this data in the data warehouse i want it in salesforce let's mm -hmm. buy high touch usually, and uh, push the data that way. Who owns that? Like there, this also requires a contract, right? It, it does, though, in some ways, and that's kind of an interesting point, because in some ways, like high touch census, I guess, Airbyte, rudder stack, I guess is kind of, I don't know, the other, whatever is out there. Um, that tool is kind of the contract. Like the way those tools work is in the simplest mm -hmm. form, you basically point them to a table. They can do a little bit more than this, but you essentially point them to a table in your database and say like, write these fields to Salesforce such that this field is this field, like match, look up the record based on this number, this, you know, the account ID, look up the record based on the account ID, the plan type is the plan type and it maps here. So you sort of create this little like mapping. That in effect is what people are kind of saying a data contract is because it's like, what are the fields you expect? What are the types of fields? Where do they like kind of map to? And so 
say that you change the data that's in the warehouse, suddenly the, the sync will stop failing um, because it's essentially like has this kind of implicit contract built in. So in that way, you're sort of protected, um, but for the same reason. It's, I mean, it's just like a, it is kind of a contract. Now, who owns that? I have no idea. I, um, I think that's by, by company. Yeah, we use, we, the contracts are kind of implicitly everywhere and therefore maybe less useful unless, as, as you said, like unless everyone's willing to sit on a negotiation table, um, it's not clear the value other than monitoring well, for something. I, as, as that kind of tool, I agree. I think if, if it's just like a test, again, if it's just like, we should check it and if it doesn't work, we should essentially have something pull a flag and say, hey, everybody stop. What's going on? Do we keep it going? Like, do we keep the line moving because we think it's actually a good change, or do we not? Sure, I, I am not. I am not opposed to that. I think that's fine, um, and I don't think that's a particularly controversial or meaningful like development. Frankly, I mean, I think it's helpful. Um, I think there are ways that we can do it that are better and stuff like that. We start to do stuff with streaming that's kind of cool and all that. Um, but I think that like a lot of the conversation around this is is i don't know in, in some ways it is like intentionally meant to get people to talk about it. like there, there's there's also like a marketing element to it where it's like new term sort of new thing let's all like always which is yeah i mean okay fine whatever like I, that's how this stuff happens i don't i don't think that's bad you know i don't does it mean it's super valuable no does it mean that like it moves conversations in interesting ways yeah sure and and i mean i i'm I'm also of the opinion, uh, maybe unpopular opinion, that like these sorts of conversations are less about us all trying to figure out how to do something any better. Like we're we're people in this space. It's a hobby. It's stuff to talk about. It's like <laughs> it's you know it, like people talk about it on Twitter not because they're trying to learn how to be better at their jobs. They talk about it on Twitter because it's like an entertaining thing to talk about. Um, and some of the so some of the debates I think are are indulgent basically, which is fine. Like, okay, fine. Uh, you know, people talk about politics, they talk about sports, all that sort of stuff. Like when people talk about politics, they're not like actually trying to change policy. It's just like a thing they're interested in. They talk about people who are interested in it. Okay. I think that's basically what's happening. You don't think that there is an aspect to where, like when we talk, okay, yeah, we both manage the systems with a lot of data. We know the problems. Mm -hmm. We kind of know the solution space. Nothing will change. But there are probably a bunch of new companies hiring a bunch of new grads to run some data systems. And they probably are going to make a lot of mistakes unless people mm -hmm. talk about the problems they've seen and how they solved it. Oh, for sure, for sure. I, I don't disagree with that. I, and and I, I guess my point is like, there is a, the, the way that that happens, my, my view of this, again, my, my, my view of this is the way that that happens and the way that people learn isn't that we write a bunch of blog posts that are like, let me teach you about data contracts. Um, that these, these like kind of uh, circular and somewhat indulgent and like navel-gazy debates, the value of them is actually like, that is how people get exposure to this stuff. And in some ways, that's what makes people interested in it. That, that for instance, and, and to take the politics example, if you're someone who is like new to the DC political world, um, the way that you learn how politics works and the way that you sort of like educate yourself about that space, sure, you might read occasionally like the sort of textbooky stuff of here's how it works. But really what you read is you read a bunch of like op-eds and articles and things that people are writing about, like what's happening, 
that are people arguing about stuff. And, and they're not tutorials. They're not like useful articles. They're just conversation. And part of that conversation, you end up like picking up what's actually going on and how this works in the real world. And so I think like a lot of, a lot of like actually the way that people will learn about data stuff isn't a bunch of mid-level data people, um, which I would put myself in that category, writing explainers about how to do this stuff. Like we don't need that. I don't think that's helpful. I think what we actually is much better is like have conversations about what you're trying to do, debate the stuff. Yeah, it's not going to be 100% like efficient tutorial stuff, but that's the way that people are going to learn is like seeing those conversations as people like talk about this stuff. And like how does data contracts work in real life versus how does it not, not something designed to be useful and to teach. There's a place for that for sure. But I think there's also a lot of place for the conversation that is just the conversation among people who are trying to figure this out. They're, they're debating it. Like that's, that's, I think actually how we move things forward more effective, effectively than, okay, we've now been doing this job for five years. It's time to turn around and try to like teach everybody everything we've learned. Like, eh, I don't think people actually really learn from that. Yeah, I agree. Also, DBT got extremely far in transforming an industry by having a tool out there. Like, mm -hmm. I think so many people had the conversations earlier. Like, why does data analytics not act more like software engineering? Why don't they have... Uh, GitHubs and CICD, and it looks like a lot of attempts were made and some of the DBT managed to actually make a real shift, which the conversations didn't really lead to. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. And I mean, obviously I think DBT has done, you know, they've changed a lot of the way that we talk about this stuff. Um, and, and I think, you know, they have done it by basically building a product that people like to use. Uh, and I think that's, and stuff like data contracts. I think that's actually, to, to back to that, that conversation a little bit, that's how to me this actually would happen. That, that like there's a cynical view of, of all this data contract stuff, which is, you know, it's, it's a thing that is, okay, it sort of makes some sense. Um, that the sort of hype around it recently is basically like hype driven before releasing products. People want to build data contracts. They have built some internal tools that do it. They want to be able to roll out data contracts as like an internal tool or as like a, as a SaaS product. People are all talking about data contracts, launch the tool. Everybody's going to want to buy it. Okay. I, okay. Sure. You know, okay. Like in some ways, job well done. We all talked about it. Um, can't really begrudge that. Uh, I started a company like I, you know, you know, I guess as mercilessly capitalist as anybody. Um, the, the thing though that I think is like, the bigger challenge with that is I think like basically DBT released a product. There's a product people like to use. They kind of sold the philosophy on top of the product. The product came first. Um, and like the product came first, the narrative came second. And the narrative fit because people had a product they really liked. Uh, and so I think like data contracts, that's how it'll actually get adopted is as you have a narrative, we can sit around and talk into our blue in the face about it. And that's what we've done. Uh, we haven't really made any progress there. Like, okay, for this actually to be a real thing, what's the product we're talking about? And once we have that, if we all like it, okay, you can stick whatever narrative you want on top of it and everybody will be thrown by it. Um, so I think, you know, I, like, will that happen? Maybe. I mean, maybe somebody will release something and, and it'll be great. And then all of a sudden all this changes and we're all like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then we'll, we'll evolve in the way that you're describing about like these software engineering principles. But I think without that, you end up kind of like your friend that said like, hey, I'm going to go sell these ideas to everybody else. They're tough ideas to sell unless you have sort of a product to, to back by. Exactly. And, and that, that bit, like, 
I, part of the reason that occurred to me is there was a, a Ben Thompson article kind of exactly on this, this idea, basically narrative before product. Um, I think it was like just from a couple of days ago. Uh, I don't usually read his stuff, but I just saw that one um, that I thought was interesting. And so, so I think that kind of fits here. I had a question somewhat related to hmm. contracts, but maybe you'll tell me, no, 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 it's a completely different thing, completely unrelated. I'm hearing a lot about semantic layer. Mm-hmm. And I, right now, I only hear it in the data analytics world that mm-hmm. they kind of define KPIs and they try to standardize. Props, we like standardized uh, KPIs. But to me, it always made sense that it should trickle down again to product engineering. Like, because we have the same problem. Six microservices, each one of them has a different thing called account, different mm-hmm. thing called a customer. Uh, so, very curious if you're seeing the same connections that I do and if you're seeing any movement in toward aligning organiz- entire organizations on these semantics. So, not really. I mean, I, th- there's maybe in like a, a very loose and kind of people starting to glance at it a little bit, but not really sure way kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> so, my understanding of this is <clears throat> there's a few ways you could cut it. So, so yeah, and the semantic piece generally, yes. I, I, like on the data side, that's become a bigger thing. Um, we've always had them. It's not like a new thing, right? Like, I mean, this <laughs> another one of those marketing terms. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's existed in in BI for thirty years, um, and and longer, kind of if you look at sort of more abstract versions. Uh, the idea of this kind of independent one or one that's a little more universal or something like that, where, you know, it can, it's not just a thing for BI tool, but I think kind of more, for more general application, um, not product application, but like more general use cases of anything that sits on top of data itself. Um, that's become kind of more in vogue recently. And I think there's some real debate as to whether or not that actually can work or not. Uh, some people kind of think that it's very hard to decouple semantics from the actual thing that is using it. Um, but ultimately, like the service that you're providing kind of has to have some control over the semantics because that's kind of the point of the service. Some people think that you could have basically the, the semantics provided in one place and then other services can consume them. I, you know, okay. And I, I, don't, I don't have a sort of super strong opinion there. I think it makes sense that you could have a universal one. Does that work in practice? We'll find out. Uh, but there are smart people I think are trying to figure that out. And so, great. And you're right that they have been trying for 30 years. Like I remember yeah. reading my first Kimball book and he's like, the really hard part is to define what are the actual dimensions, the actual stuff we measure, what it actually means. Yeah. And and I like, I think that there's there are efforts potentially you could go even further. Like I, I don't want to get into debating about that stuff too much probably because I don't know anything about it but but like it seems reasonable to say that you wouldn't actually want to expose semantics in like a Kimberly kind of way that that like applications often are some exposing semantics kind of whatever that means in like a GraphQL sort of way um and that that's like seems to work pretty well for application development does it work well for analytics probably not um but maybe I don't know um and so I think that there's <clears throat> There is some trying to figure out exactly what that looks like of if we do have sort of a universal semantic kind of understanding of what's going on in the world, like with with analytics stuff, how do we expose it? 
is that possible? Okay, and, and there's some efforts at this. You know, like DBT is obviously doing some stuff there. Look ML is an effect this, and whether or not they try to make it a universal thing versus a Google thing, I don't know. Um, there's things like Malloy, which is inside of Google. Um, there's a couple others. There's like, a, I can't remember the name of the company, a scale, I don't know. Um, they make a semantic, it's like, I can't remember, uh, at scale, I think, I don't know. Um, anyway, there's, there's various versions of this. <clears throat> Most of those, though, are still like very much aimed at data consumers. They're aimed at what happens, like essentially data is in a database uh, as opposed to application semantics. I haven't seen anybody really sort of truly try to unify that where application engineers could be using the same kind of semantics as what you get out of like an analyst who's writing a query. We are sort of getting a little closer in the sense that that people like Snowflake are attempting to be this both analytics and OLAP database, basically, like they have this kind of hybrid attempt. Uh, I don't know if that'll work, um, but basically Snowflake wants to be the place if you have data and you want to process it in any way, whether or not that's for analytics or whether that's for like your own application, <clears throat> put it in Snowflake and you can sort of access it however you want. It's reasonable to think if Snowflake then had like an embedded semantic layer inside of it, that both of those things could use that same same semantics. So. I don't think that's crazy um, to be able to say like, hey, we have like this one kind of semantic system uh, that everything can use. Um, I think that that can work. Um, the thing I think that's probably the hardest about that isn't actually technical, and it's certainly hard technically, but I think it's not necessarily technical. I think it's more of there isn't really one model of the business in that way. like. The way that an engineer thinks about this stuff is different than the way sales ops thinks about it, which is different than the way that, you know, a finance team looks at it. Like, it, 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 as tempting as it is to think there is one sort of model to rule them all um, and, like, one way to unify all of our data that sort of answers all of our questions, be they a deep dive as to what happened this quarter when this segment didn't hit its revenue number versus the question is, which image do I show this user when they load their feed? Um I don't know there's actually sort of a single model that actually can unify that in a sensible way. And I think it may be better off having like multiple sort of semantic models uh, than trying to unify it all under kind of one, one group. It does bring us back to what you said about contracts. Like I've been in so many meetings where sales and marketing executives are just going head to head because like, what does it mean? Marketing sourced opportunity versus sales sourced opportunity was kind of defined in a way that some opportunities got double counted. I'm 100% sure that no one other than a CEO saying this is how it's going to be can resolve mm -hmm. this situation. But possibly good semantic tooling could help catch the double counting and catch the overlap. There are so many ways, basically, to, to me, where, where you can have that problem in some form arise like the ability to go in, in some ways if you think about like how hard it is to go from the ceo or like the data that is collected by say a, a fortune 500 company the number of transactions that they run uh the number of like disparate data sources from which those transactions come how those things get aggregated up the methods by which they get aggregated, the timing by which they get aggregated, um, the semantic understanding of how to aggregate them and like the relationships between those things, the the 
methodology to aggregate them, the methodology to deal with all of the weird edge cases, <clears throat> then to match that into some like gap reporting number to say that we made X dollars this quarter. <clears throat> like the number of things that have to happen to go from the original sort of like raw material there to that number accurately is enormous. Um, which doesn't mean we can't get it right. And it doesn't mean we can't have like systems in place to help us not get it wrong. But I think it, it isn't like a series of checks. It's not like a series of like, well, does this table not have any nulls? Therefore it's right. Like you can mess that up in so many ways. Yes. Um, you can mess it up by the data being bad. You can mess it up by like data being missing. That isn't bad. It's just not there. Um, you can mess it up by the formulas being wrong. You can mess it up by the formulas being right, but them not actually representing <laughs> the definition you want them to be like, we can mess it up by somebody entering the wrong number into Salesforce, which like, who knows that that was wrong. It's impossible. So, so I think the idea that we could ever have a system that checks this is like a little bit of a pipe dream. And it's great. It's like great to have that ambition to think like, let's keep piling on and figuring out if we can figure out better ways to do it. <clears throat> but there is this idea to me of like, oh, if we monitor this appropriately enough, we can say that number is correct without second thought. And I think we are a million miles from that. We could say like this number is correct because we know that these five out of a thousand things that could go wrong didn't go wrong. Yes, we can be confident in that. But like, I don't know, you know, <clears throat> that's that's like me getting an airplane and being like, yep, yeah, I'm happy to fly on this thing because the left wing is still attached. Okay, like that's that's good to know. It's not gonna fly without the left wing attached, but like I would like to check a few other things first. Um and so you know, I, I think we got a ways to go before like that, that type of checking can actually be realistic. I agree with you. And I think it's a good place to conclude. Like right. data is hard. Running a business is hard. Running a data-driven business is probably several order of magnitudes harder than trying to do either of those separately. <laughs> It's, it's all hard. All this, yeah. Uh, every, every problem is hard. It looks easy and then suddenly it's hard. Yeah. I think this um, conversation really highlighted a lot of, like, there is no panacea. You cannot just download a better data architecture for your company. Uh, so I appreciate you coming in and highlighting all these nuances and complexity. It's mm -hmm. been for sure. extremely interesting. For sure. Thanks.